This is episode number 46 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the usually bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast are most definitely not compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Individual One Pod. That's Individual Number One Pod. After uh, taking a short break because uh, this past week was our annual vacation or almost annual vacation to Yosemite National Park here in California, we're now back and ready to go for the next couple of episodes. We'll be doing another one this coming Sunday. And as is usually the case in the Trump era, there is lots to talk about. Almost none of it has anything to do with the now ancient Mueller report and investigation, which is in our short attention spans, almost been completely and totally forgotten. The collusion delusion is over for yeah yeah that you're right yeah, you're probably right there uh, Donald Trump uh, for better or for worse mostly for the worse uh, the reality is that there are still Democrats coming out in favor of an impeachment inquiry uh, due to the Mueller report I believe we've now just inched and inched is probably the right way of phrasing it because it's happened much more as a trickle rather than the anticipated floodgate after the Rather poor performance by Robert Mueller during his testimony a couple weeks ago, but we've now inched past the halfway point of the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives being in favor of an impeachment inquiry. My good friend, Congressman John Yarmouth, Democrat who is the chairman of the Budget Committee, had predicted on this program that after the Mueller testimony that well over half of the Democratic caucus would come out in favor of such an impeachment inquiry and that that would therefore put push uh, pressure on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to allow that to officially begin. There are some indications that it is unofficially begun for the purposes of strengthening the court case on behalf of subpoenas uh, in the investigation. But the reality is that there is no current public uh, impeachment inquiry that has begun in the House Judiciary Committee, which is where such a thing would and should have begun a long time ago. Uh, and we're not getting to the point of <clears throat> some sort of uh, massive momentum. And there's nothing that's going to spark a massive momentum on that front, uh, at least unless the political dynamics change. Now, there are some events that are occurring that could theoretically change the political dynamic. We'll get to those in short. But the reality is that for an impeachment inquiry to be approved by Nancy Pelosi. You need probably in the range of 200 Democrats who are fervently in favor of that. At that point, she could no longer uh, put the kibosh on it. We're not at that point yet, and there's no sign that we're going to get uh, to that point. And why that's the case? Well, uh, I'm not going to get into that. Yeah, well, right there. That's pretty much why that is the case, because of the very horrid and disappointing, although not all that surprising, uh, pathetic performance by Robert Mueller. Uh, everything, in short, and I've, I've written a lot about this. You can check it out, my, my columns, which we've posted at Individual One Pod and in previous editions of the Individual One Podcast. Uh, I've written and talked about this extensively, but the bottom line here is this was the opposite of a witch hunt. Robert Mueller has been and continues to be 
uh, Donald Trump's very best friend, whether Donald Trump wants to realize it or not. Uh, I don't know whether or not he does. But the fact is that Robert Mueller is everything that Robert that Donald Trump could have possibly asked for in that entire investigation. And that's why Trump is going to likely, very likely survive it potentially without any real accountability. Correct. All right. So uh, because there's so much other news to talk about, which has overshadowed whatever aftermath there was from Robert Mueller's testimony, uh, I do want to get into that. And obviously the, the biggest story here in the United States over the last several days has been the aftermath of not one but two horrendous mass shootings, one in El Paso, Texas, and one in Dayton, Ohio. Now, it is... Um, Always bizarre to me. There's so many things that are bizarre in the way we react to news in this country and how broken our news media is. And trust me, it is as broken as it can possibly be. But when it comes to these mass shootings, the first thing that I'm always baffled by is the magic of it seems to be the number 10. I don't know what it is that the shooting that has more than 10 victims and in in this case victims would be fatalities you have more than 10 fatalities that's a massive news story for some reason if there's five or six it doesn't seem to move the media needle which is pathetic it's it's sad we're better than that no no we're not i mean but for some reason 10 and if you can get over a dozen and then that's you know from the media's perspective that's even more significant And then what's really strange about this past weekend is that somehow El Paso and Dayton become combined. And I don't understand this at all. They they have absolutely nothing in common. There's no evidence that Dayton was inspired by El Paso. Uh, They were done. They were committed by two apparently very different types of people in very different parts of the country. I guess from a political standpoint, you could argue that there's some semblance of connection and that these are two Republican states that theoretically could go Democrat, depending who the Democratic nominee is in 2020. But there's really no connection between the two. Yet in the media's mind, they see them as the same thing, part of the same phenomenon which has been happening for many years in this country, unfortunately, this phenomenon of mass shootings resulting in huge fatalities, and in this case, uh, over a couple dozen people combined have died already in these two horrendous attacks. Now, the El Paso situation has probably gotten the most attention, especially in the left-wing media. One, there's more fatalities, and for some reason, that's the most significant thing. I understand that, I guess, logically, but death is death, and they're both horrendous, horrible situations. But in El Paso, you have a, a guy who appears to have fit, and you underline appears because you never know with these nut jobs for sure what's really going on. But on the surface, appears to have been potentially enabled or inspired by the rhetoric of people like Donald Trump. Are we ever going to know that for sure? Probably not, but there's a lot of in early indications, and early indications are often wrong that he certainly fit that profile. The Dayton situation appears to not be that case. Uh, This does not appear to be someone who was inspired by Donald Trump in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, 
his own sister and his sister's boyfriend apparently were among the fatalities. The FBI is investigating that situation as someone uh, who may have had a, a tendency towards violent ideologies. That's the phrase that the FBI used in a press conference yesterday. So again, we, we don't know for sure. We may never know for sure. It is very dangerous to jump immediately to conclusions based upon fragments of information. But this has created a media narrative. And the media loves creating narratives. It used to be it took three episodes to create a narrative. Now, because our attention spans are so short, it's now just two. So you have two that seem similar. Now you got a narrative. And this is something that's happening in America. And it's happening in America in the Trump era. So therefore, they're in the media's mind and the liberals' minds, there must be a direct connection between Donald Trump and these mass shootings. Is that the case? I don't think we know. I don't know if that's possible to know. I'm not saying it's not the case. As I said, in El Paso, there are certainly legitimate questions that are being asked. But here's the thing where I'd lose any, you know, my inclination would be to actually defend Donald Trump here. I mean, look, mass shootings happened before Donald Trump. They're happening during Donald Trump's presidency. Unfortunately, they'll probably continue to happen after Donald Trump is no longer president. So that would be my inclination is to say, hey, wait a minute, this is absurd. This is dangerous to be blaming the president of the United States. Where my sympathy ends or empathy for ends uh, with Donald Trump is that this is this kind of criticism is the price that you pay for using the rhetoric that Trump has consistently used, especially on Twitter and especially in his rallies regarding, for instance, Hispanics who were targeted in the El Paso attack and in general, the issue of using violence, either metaphorical or literal, in response to your enemies. I'm sorry, but when you engage in that type of behavior to incite your cult, then you must pay a price for that. Correct. And the reality is that Donald Trump, unlike any other president has ever even conceived of doing, has incited his own cult. I love the poorly educated. With this type of rhetoric. Now, and does that mean the rhetoric is responsible for the attacks? No, it, it does not necessarily. But that doesn't mean you don't get criticized for it. If you don't want to get criticized for people who seem to emulate your own rhetoric and then kill lots of innocent people, then don't use the rhetoric then don't incite people in the way that you incite them, especially in the realm of race. It's really not that complicated. So if, you know, Trump has been whining, oh, the media, the media is so mean to me. They're out to get me. I can't stand it. There's no other president has ever been blamed for a mass shooting. Well, yeah, no other president has ever said the things that you have said, mostly on Twitter and at your rallies, that would theoretically, and it's not a fantasy, inspire or at least enable somebody like the El Paso shooter and uh, attacker and doing what they did. I mean, it's, it's pretty darn clear. If you don't want to get criticized for that, then don't use those tactics. But that's who Trump is. And Trump, of course, wants to have it both ways. And most of the right wing media is rallying around him on this under the guise that somehow they're supporting their gun rights. I, and look, I, I believe in the Second, uh, Second Amendment. I'm a conservative. I'm a constitutional conservative. I get it. 
Uh, you know, but ironically, Donald Trump, who, of course, is a lifelong Manhattan liberal who has probably never fired a gun in his entire life. Correct. Uh, he, he does not really believe in the Second Amendment, but he knows that a lot of his base does. So he has to tread a, a very uh, thin line here. Today, he actually raised the issue of background checks that and this was rather ironic for a guy who has bragged about being a stable genius and who many people have suggested is not all there mentally himself, that he uh, thinks that we ought to take a look at the mentally unstable and the ill and whether or not uh, we should do more with regard to background checks to prevent them from getting guns. Well, I mean, the irony here is rich. Is I'm wondering whether or not Donald Trump would ever pass a background check of that variety. But regardless of that point, the issue is this. Conservatives, real conservatives, know that this is a massive problem because if you enlarge greatly the criteria for how someone could be rejected in buying a gun via background checks, who is making the decision on how and why someone would be rejected? Well, that's going to be a government person, right? Inherently. It's going to be the government that will be determining whether or not you are, quote unquote, fit or unfit for a gun. The call on whether someone is mentally fit or unfit to own a gun is inherently, fundamentally, a judgment call. It is a matter of opinion. It is incredibly subjective, right? There's no, there is no possible way that I can think of. If there is, I'd love to hear it. There's no th- theoretical way that I can think of where someone can be rejected for a gun for being mentally unfit that is not at least in some way, shape, or form subjective in nature. That means a government person is making a judgment call on your fitness to own a gun, which is a right in our Constitution. That is the definition of a dangerous, slippery slope. Because when you have the government determining in a judgment call that's inherently subjective, whether or not someone can own a gun, inevitably, inevitably, that is going to become a political tool or weapon. It has to be. There's no other way for that to go. And any conservative knows the last person you want making a decision on whether or not someone has lost their right to own a gun because of mental fitness is a liberal bureaucrat in the government, especially as the world becomes more and more PC. I mean, think about, think about it this way. I mean, the same people who would be making that call are the same people who are, who are uh, policing Twitter and Facebook and, and determining what is appropriate speech. It's basically the same concept. Well, I'm a free speech advocate. I'm a purist. That means you've got to deal with bad speech as in order to have free speech. If you don't have bad speech or so-called hate speech, you don't have any speech because eventually it will all lead to government censorship or de facto government censorship that's instituted by people who are very PC and very liberal. And it comes to Twitter, Facebook, or whatever. Most of them are living in San Francisco or Silicon Valley. You want those people deciding on what, what is legitimate speech? 
you want a Washington bureaucrat deciding on who's fit mentally to own a gun? The slippery slope matters. And if Trump was really a conservative, which he's not, he would understand that problem. But he thinks that this is a magic wand, that somehow you can create rules for a mentally unfit person. You, I, don't, I don't believe you can. If you can, I'm certainly open to hearing it. But the, the initial indications are that under most standards for background checks, the El Paso shooter and the Dayton shooter would not have been denied a gun. Now, we don't know that for sure yet, but those were the initial reports. So, and then, of course, you know, Republicans want to say video games, which gets mocked because there's no evidence at all that these two situations were created by, by video games. But I believe it's a hodgepodge of everything. I believe very much in the theory that when there is a mystery that you can't understand, there's almost always multiple explanations. Desensitization via video games, via movies. Hollywood plays a role here. Of course, they're all liberals. They don't want to admit to it. But, you know, Hollywood has been glorifying gun use for a very, very, very long time. And in an extreme matter, especially manner, especially with uh, movies targeted to teenage boys these days, they're incredibly violent. But I think that plays a role. Desensitization plays a role via media, whether it's video games, movies, television, what have you. Mental illness plays a role. We do not deal with mental illness properly. I've already stated that determining whether or not someone is mentally fit to own a gun is an incredibly inherently dangerous proposition. My pet peeve on this issue, and I've written about this for media before, is that the one element of this topic that no one wants to touch, because it's one, it's unsolvable and two it's very controversial is this i believe that we as a country especially younger people no longer believe in religion nearly as much as we used to which means you no longer believe in an afterlife nearly as much as you used to and afterlife and i'm agnostic i grew up as a catholic and i refer to myself as a recovering catholic my guess is there is no god certainly not a god that uh, has anything to do with what's going on here on earth i don't believe necessarily in an afterlife because that just sounds too darn good to be true and very little about this existence appears to be anything better than what we've been promised or what we see with our own eyes and ears so while it would be wonderful uh, for there to be an afterlife where your good deeds were rewarded and your bad deeds were punished. I don't believe it. However, there are other things that keep me from doing things that I think are bad. One, I believe in right and wrong. Uh, two, uh, I have a family, and I wouldn't do anything to disgrace them. I don't believe in harming other people. Uh, so, so that's what keeps me in line. But I'm 52 years old, and I'm a principled person. Teenagers or young people, uh, millennials, if you whatever you want to call them, they're not growing up with that. And they're not growing up with what I would call the ultimate goalkeeper here, which is religion. Religion is the ultimate reason to keep somebody in line, to keep them from doing something horrendous that might result in their own death. See, that's the inherent problem here. It's a lot like Islamic terrorism, like with 9-11, where all 19 hijackers died. How do you stop that? Most of the time, not all, but in most of the instances of these mass shootings, the shooter ends up dead, either by their own hand or by law enforcement finally getting to them. 
Well, if you're willing or wanting to die and you don't believe in an afterlife where you're going to be punished for what you just did in killing 12 or 20 people, whatever it is, then what's in that distorted mind worldview, that mindset, what's the downside? I maintain that the Las Vegas shooting, which is amazing to me that the Las Vegas shooting as a news story is not treated in any way, shape or form. Uh, like, for instance, a 9-11 type event. And maybe it's partially because Las Vegas itself doesn't want it to be that way because it doesn't want its brand to be associated with that. But that was by far the, the worst mass shooting in American history. Over 50 people died, hundreds others injured, and we, no one ever talks about that. And we basically put up our hands and said, well, we don't know why that guy did it. Law enforcement, to my knowledge, has never come up with a semi-remotely rational, not that you could be thinking rationally here, but any kind of plausible sort of motive. And I wrote immediately after that, based upon this guy, that guy's profile, that to me, this was a guy who had decided he was done living with life uh, and he basically wanted to go out with a bang. He wanted to put out, uh, you know, create uh, this sick suicide party for himself that he was going to, you know, I don't know if he was a video game player, but he was essentially going to put himself in his own video game before he fully intended to die because he didn't care. He didn't care about other humans and he didn't believe in an afterlife. He was a non-religious person who was not going to suffer any consequences. And in fact, because he wanted to end his life, uh, this was going to be uh, the most exciting and easiest way for him to do that. And now, obviously, I don't know that for sure, but that's a theory that to me makes a hell of a lot more sense than anything else I've heard there. And I predicted at the time we were going to see more of this because fewer and fewer people, especially young people, are growing up believing that they will eventually be rewarded or punished in an afterlife for what happens here on Earth. Government can only do so much when it comes to instilling a sense of justice. Bad guys are always going to get away with bad acts. Good people are sometimes going to be punished. But as long as most of society believes that eventually justice will be done in an afterlife through some sort of all-knowing, all-powerful, and a, a, a God that is good, then you can keep a semblance of social order. Social order will break down incredibly fast once that belief is gone. And that belief among younger people is at a dangerously low level. And that, to me, is the part of this equation that no one wants to talk about for the, for the reasons that are obvious based upon what I, I just stated. But, of course, the news media, when they look at this story, they see it through that same old prism. Is Trump a racist or not? Correct. I mean, that's it's amazing. This is like, you know, the definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. No matter what happens, whether it's the Elijah Cummings situation in Baltimore. We're better than that. Or now the El Paso shooting. Is Donald Trump a racist and is now is now his racist white nationalist tendencies actually resulting in human death. That's what the media wants to focus on. Look, I get that that's a legitimate question, but there's a difference between asking that as a legitimate question 
and being focused on that to, to the level of obsession to where everything else gets blacked out. And I don't use the word black uh, for any other reason for than the, the word blackout. The reality is that it has moved everything else to the side. And there are other things that I think are potentially more politically long-term damaging to Donald Trump than whether or not he may or may not have played a role in the El Paso shooting. Again, I'm not diminishing the El Paso shooting. The Dayton thing I'm putting in a different category based upon what we currently know about it. But the reality is, for instance, and I tweeted about this this morning, and there was some controversy about it, and a lot of people agreeing and disagreeing with my take. But look, the left media is or media members and the and the left wing of the Democratic Party has been outraged that some of the media, including the New York Times, hasn't been tough enough on Trump in the post Texas El Paso shooting with regard to calling him a racist and blaming him for what happened here. The New York Times actually put out a, a, a headline after Trump's teleprompter speech, which uh, effectively put him on the side of unity against racism. It was unity versus racism, and the left completely freaked out. Correct. As if the New York Times was doing his bidding for him. Now, first of all, the entire concept that the New York Times is on Trump's side is absurd. I mean, come on, people. You cannot be serious! Uh, I didn't agree with the headline either, because I do believe it was a, a particularly pro-Trump headline, and there were probably other ways to more accurately depict what Trump was trying to do in that teleprompter speech as opposed to the statements that he has made, for instance, on Twitter. But it's not the New York Times job to tell liberals what they want to hear. But unfortunately, that's what it's becoming. And that's one of the many reasons why our news media is totally broken. And now that they are subscriber-based, the subscribers seem to think that they own the company. And there are people who actually were desubscribing or unsubscribing from the New York Times because of this headline for which the New York Times apologized. It's just flat out ridiculous. And changed, which they've now done on numerous occasions whenever there's been a left-wing freakout over, oh my gosh, the New York Times is not doing our bidding to, to the extent we would like. Well, that's not the way journalism is supposed to work. Journalism is not telling the people that are paying you what they want to hear. Journalism is journalists trying to determine what the truth is and telling that truth in a fair and honest fashion. Now, did the New York Times do that? In that case, you could argue either way. It's hardly, it was hardly the most egregious affront to journalism I've seen even just this week. But liberals freaked out. And the freak out, both in the media and outside the media, on the liberal side, towards these shootings has completely overshadowed something that I think, and this is what I tweeted about today, has more danger for Donald Trump in the long run than anything having to do with racism or whether or not he's connected in some way, shape, or form to a mass shooting. And that is that Donald Trump proactively, on his own, and completely stupidly, against the advice of his own advisors, against the philosophy of his own political party, has now gotten us into a trade war with China from which there is no apparent going back that has caused the stock market in the last several days to lose, at this point, about 1,500 points. That's 
Unbelievable. Correct. I mean, he did this on his own, out of his own ego. Correct. That's that's what this is driving this. He does not want to admit that he's wrong. Correct. Even though everyone around him says, you have no idea what you're doing, sir. You are getting involved in something that's way over your head. China is going to kick our ass because they're in this for the long haul. They don't give a damn about their people. And guess what else they don't give a damn about? They don't give a damn about an election coming up in just over a year. They know they have Trump over a barrel, almost literally. They know they have him by the short hairs. They also know from his past history that Trump is going to cave and his threats are not to be taken seriously because he's a bully and he's a fake strongman. Correct. So China has all the leverage here. And so Trump got himself in a war that he said was easy to win, that he cannot win, especially in the short run. And now he's seeing the stock market react. Now, people have said well, to Zig, to me, Zig, you know, there's not that many people with money in the stock market. So therefore, the stock market going down doesn't influence potential votes as much as uh, you know, saying that Trump is to blame for a mass killing. Well, first of all, there is a far, far exponentially greater connection between Trump's tariffs and the trade war on China and what's happening on the stock market than there is with his obscene rhetoric and what's what happened potentially in El Paso, Texas. So right there, that's important to point out. The truth matters. And so the connection between Trump and the stock market is direct. And also, it's important to point out, Trump has, unlike any other modern president, has consistently taken credit for the stock market being at high levels. Correct. Even though it has not gone up nearly as much during the Trump era as it did during Obama. Now, there's reasons for that. Obama took over when it is at a, at a very low level, uh, and that certainly helped his statistics. But the statistics aren't close. Over his eight-year period, the stock market went up in a percentage basis at a much better clip than it has in the basically three years of the Trump administration. That's a fact. Correct. And, and and Trump bragged, unlike Obama did. Obama never bragged about it, partially because his people don't consider a stock market going up to be all that great a thing. So he was almost embarrassed by the stock market going up, and I don't think he had that much to do with it. But the reality is Trump has bragged about this consistently in a way that is absurd, but in a way that now... In a rational world, he should be made to pay a price for. If you're going to brag when it's going up, then you must be attacked when it's going down, especially when it's going down because of you. There's almost no evidence that, that the level to which it's gone up during Trump's presidency is because of anything he did. You could argue some of it was because of the tax cuts that he signed. But other than that, he has had, you know, I keep hearing about deregulation, I know, and no one can show me what's the specific regulation he cut that, that has increased the stock market or decreased unemployment or anything like that. I think most of that is, if not entirely, Trump-related bullcrap. Uh, but the reality is that we now know that Trump is the reason why it's gone down. And while 1,500 points in the Dow isn't nearly what it used to be, that is a significant chunk of change. That is billions and billions and billions of dollars of market share. 
But here's the even worse part. Yes, the majority of Americans don't have money in the stock market. Even those that do, a lot of them are in retirement accounts that they're not touching right now. And so therefore, they don't see the, the net impact of the market going down on their day-to-day life, even though it still makes them nervous they, when they get their, their uh, statements at the end of the month or they check online. It, they're not going to be worth nearly as much money as they were a week or so ago. So that might have some impact on some people. But here's why it's even worse. This is a very rare situation. I can't, honestly, I cannot remember a circumstance where a president proactively and directly caused the stock market to go down this much, but it's even worse than that. Because part of the reason why the stock market is going down currently is that there is a belief that largely because of Trump's tariffs and his trade war with China, that it is plunging us more quickly into a recession era than previously anticipated. I mean, we've been going through incredibly good growth. Uh, It's been steady for a a record period of time. So inevitably, that was going to reverse itself. But it was not believed it was going to reverse itself for a little while yet. Well, now there's almost a 50-50 shot, according to most economists, that within the next year, we're going to begin to go into a recession. And it's because of Donald Trump. That is Donald Trump's kryptonite. Correct. Because everything, especially on the Republican side, the conservative side, has been based on, well, the economy is good. We're not in any wars. He's giving us the judges we want. So therefore, we're willing to put up with everything else. Correct. That's his entire philosophy. Now, I've never believed in that because I don't believe that's the way the presidency should be judged. I believe that this is about caretaking uh, the, the House, if you will. Uh, uh, of the American people so that it maintains itself for generations to come. And Trump is infesting this house with termites. I've gone into that diatribe before, and a lot of it's on the issue of character. A lot of it's on the issue of ethics. A lot of it's on the issue of whether or not we're going to turn into a monarchy or some sort of dictatorship, which to me dwarfs everything else. But the reality here is that this is Trump's kryptonite. If you want to go after Trump, if you blow up the perception that one, the economy is great, and two, that Trump is the cause of that, and three, if you somehow were able to convince people that the economy was actually doing well until Trump screwed it up because of his own incompetence and his own ego, now he's in big trouble. Correct. Especially against a, a candidate, like, for instance, a Joe Biden, who won't offend that many people, especially in the upper Midwest, especially white people who won't be scared that uh, their stuff's going to be taken away and given to colored people. I mean, that's that's essentially what we got here. So to me, from a political standpoint, the the issue of Trump's culpability for the stock market decline and potential recession that it is foreshadowing dwarfs the political impact of once again trying to call Donald Trump a racist and blaming him for things that he theoretically had nothing to do with. Uh, Look at my African-American over here. We've talked about this many times before. Is Trump a racist? I don't know. He certainly acts like one. Uh, Look at my African-American over here. Okay, but uh, and he certainly has said things regarding Hispanics and and uh, illegal immigrants that would certainly lead one to believe that that's the case. He the fact that he acts like one to me, especially as president, is essentially the same thing as him being one. 
in the media's mind, that is the worst thing that essentially could be said about you. Either being a rapist or a racist. It's interesting that those two R's, you know, rapist, racist, and Republican. Those are the three R words that makes the media minds blow up. And so that's where they go after him. They go after him for, for being a rapist. They go after him for being a racist. Well, to the people that are inclined to vote for him, they either don't believe that stuff or they don't care. They don't care. Or in worst case scenario, it actually appeals to them, as pathetic as that is. We're better than that. So the media doesn't understand or maybe they don't care. Maybe they actually subconsciously want Trump to be reelected. The liberal base, though, they're such feelers. They, 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 they do this thing where they emotionally react rather than, rather than respond with their brains. And the, the, if you're going to respond with your brains and you want Trump gone from office after four years and you don't want to take the chance of what would be a horrendous circumstance of Donald Trump having another four years with no accountability to the, to the public, to the voters, to the media, to anybody, because he doesn't care. I mean, he already barely cares, but he seems to care at least a little bit about re-election, if, if only to keep himself out of prison. The reality is you got to use your brains. You can't do this emotionally. You can't keep doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result. Going after him as a racist, going after him as a rapist, hasn't worked, and it's unlikely to. Now, if there were a spate of white nationalist, pro-Trump mass killings, I think that would absolutely have an impact, and it should whether Trump is directly responsible or not. Again, because he is responsible for his own rhetoric and his own enabling of people thinking that they're actually doing the right thing, that somehow there's, some, there's something good about this white nationalism or white uh, superiority or, or that somehow they are justified in attacking people of color because the people of color are bad. Trump does re- deserve some responsibility for that. I get it. But I'm trying to take this out of a situation where your your feelings are hurt and you're angry about it. I get the anger. But if you actually want to do something about it, you got to use your brain. And you have to think about this logically. And you can't be overtaken by your emotions. I get the emotional reaction. It's not illegitimate. But if you really want to get Trump, his kryptonite is the economy. As James Carville uh, famously said, it's the economy stupid. You take away the economy, which I believe is a bogus narrative to begin with, but if you take it away in a way that people can actually see, actually feel, either not directly or with their neighbors or with their bank statements, their 401k statements, what have you, if they feel it, then all of a sudden everything else is going to start to matter. People start to care about these other issues a heck of a lot more when they don't feel like the person uh, is providing for them, literally or figuratively, on an economic level. If they think the economy's good, it's peace and prosperity, and with the case of conservatives, he's also given you conservative justices, they have proven time and time again that they will put up with almost anything. I love the poorly educated. But they won't put up with hardly anything if they think he's the reason why the economy has started the tank. And there is a real decent chance that that's going to happen. And to me, it's amazing that that has gotten so little media attention over the last several days. Um, 
a couple other things I want to mention. You know, this is incredibly small, but it just goes to show how utterly desensitized we are by the Trump era. And I've said this from day one that he's doing this partially on purpose because he can get away with so much more when our ability to calibrate how outraged we should be by a particular act has been totally distorted because we've never seen anything like this before. And, and this is something that I didn't even see any, hardly any media coverage of it. I tweeted about it several days ago. But the President of the United States, I think this was last week, early last week, the President of the United States tweeted, essentially, an endorsement of a book by George Papadopoulos. Now, George Papadopoulos is a guy who was, we were told, by Trump, who Trump mocked George Papadopoulos for essentially being a coffee boy who had nothing to do with their campaign because it was George Papadopoulos who was essentially the beginning of the Trump-Russia investigation for all intents and purposes. And it was the Australians who apparently got first wind that Papadopoulos was being infiltrated by Russian intelligence. And when it first appeared as if Papadopoulos was going to be on Team Mueller, the, the Trump reaction was, oh, we don't even know him, even though there's a photo of him at a round table with Trump and a bunch of other advisors. He was a coffee boy. He's a nobody. And now that Trump feels that he's in the clear and there was supposedly no collusion, no obstruction, which is a flat out lie that was perpetrated by his handpicked hack, Bill Barr. But you know that story if you've ever listened to the Individual One podcast before. So now that Papadopoulos stayed loyal and now that Trump feels as he's in the clear, Papadopoulos has a book out and the president of the United States tweeted essentially an endorsement of that book, wishing him luck with it and tweeting that information to his 62 million followers. You know what that's called? That's called a commercial. That is a commercial that has significant monetary value to George Papadopoulos. Significant. You know what else that could be called? That's paying a witness in a federal investigation of your own campaign, one that found very, very serious violations and resulted in numerous criminal convictions. That's amazing to me. It's absolutely astonishing that this happened. You cannot be serious. I mean, the president of the United States in, in prior eras would never have dreamed of publicly endorsing any book to that level. Now, they might have found other ways to do it, you know, be found on the beach uh, with a book or holding a book while walking in the Oval Office, whether they did it on purpose or not. But proactively tweeting and retweeting a, a plea from a book author about their own book and this person being a witness in an investigation, a key witness in, the, in an investigation of your own campaign in a way that you're essentially paying them off for their loyalty. That's way worse than a pardon. A pardon, which I, I think, you know, Trump has totally bastardized the pardon power and will continue to do so. God help us in a second term. 
even if he loses in 2020, I think his pardons between the election and him leaving office are going to be beyond outrageous, if only because he's he's going to want to cause as much chaos as possible. But at least then it's clear cut. It's on the record. And even though the public doesn't react to it nearly like they should or they used to, the, the reality is that there's there's no there's no uh, uh, ambiguity about it here. It's a payment. It's not just a pardon. It's a payment. And that is not just a payment for George Papadopoulos. That is a signal to everybody else in any other situation, either past, present or future, that, hey, you stay loyal to me. I'll make sure you get paid. It's just like the mafia. Donald Trump is Tony Soprano. And this here he is right in broad daylight in front of God and everybody using what's essentially a, an official government Twitter feed de facto as president of the United States to help promote and endorse a book by a key witness who stayed essentially loyal to him in an investigation of his own campaign. That's unbelievable. It's it's really unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. <laughs> but that's where we are now. That can happen and no one even bats an eyelash. That's pathetic. And that's what we have done in enabling Donald Trump and continuing to enable Donald Trump. And that's what he has done to us by desensitizing us. And these are this is a desensitization from which it's going to be very difficult, if impossible, to return from, regardless of who the next president is. Now, since the last time we spoke, the Democrats held two debates they went pretty much as I expected. I was not able to watch them, although I caught some of them on satellite radio from from what I refer to as Mars, which is Yosemite National Park, where you can't get any cell service. And you're lucky if you get your XM satellite radio. Uh, it, it's funny because I, I listened to a, a few minutes of the second debate. And frankly, any debate that doesn't have Joe Biden at this point is irrelevant. I mean, the first debate night, uh, I, I don't understand what, what you're supposed to accomplish there when the guy who is the clear front runner is not in the debate. Uh, it doesn't really seem to matter. But Biden was in the second debate and it was it was very easy to pick up what the narrative was going to be in just a few minutes. Biden was able to get his dick up, which is what everyone wanted to see. Well, not literally see it, but figuratively. He was able to you know, show he can still get it up, whether or not he needed Seattle's or not. I don't know. Uh, but uh, he was able to get it back up after not getting it up in the first debate. Uh, and at his age, that's incredibly important, especially if you're going to go up against Donald Trump. And so he was able to do that. He was able to withstand the anticipated attacks from the other desperate candidates. He gave it back to, to some of them pretty darn good. Uh, but what I did not anticipate was that Kamala Harris was going to do basically a face plant and that the polls have indicated exactly that result. Uh, order was restored. Biden is basically back to where he was prior to that first debate, which was panned. And Kamala Harris is now already started to fade. She's already had her moment. Now, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult to get a second moment. Once you start to fade, now John McCain did this back in 2008, but that was a fairly unique situation. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but if Harris now is really starting to fade and Elizabeth Warren, based upon the polls post these two Democratic debates, is starting to surge with Bernie Sanders pretty much stuck with his base of Bernie bots, that is interesting and important. I realize it's early. I realize the polls 
can fluctuate. But we're now getting to a situation, as I have predicted for months, that really only five people can win the nomination. Biden, Warren, Harris, Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. The only reason I put Buttigieg in there is because, one, he has a ton of money. The media does love him. He has the cachet of being gay and married and being young, and he is a smart guy, and he's got a unique uh, background having served in the military. I I don't believe he's going to be the nominee, but I put him on that list simply because he at least has the, uh, the, the ingredients to where if the proper uh, environment occurs, he could blow up. He has the ability to blow up. He has the potential to be the Obama 2008 of this campaign. Now, much like Harris, though, he's already had his media moment. Do you get a second media moment? Do you get a second time uh, cover of Time magazine? It's hard for me to imagine that. I mean, it can happen, but what's the spark that's going to cause Pete Buttigieg to explode? I don't know, but we're living in a strange world. So I'm putting him on the list of five. I think the other four have a much better chance. And frankly, Sanders, I don't really think has that much of a chance because unlike Buttigieg, I don't think Sanders has much room to grow his support. If anything, his support is eroding. And I've said many times, and I've not heard anybody else say this, but I think it's cogent analysis, that Sanders is doing Joe Biden a huge favor. As long as Sanders is in the low 20s, where he can't really catch Biden, but he's sucking up a lot of the oxygen, he's keeping a lot of the crazies on the left all together, backing a candidate who can't beat Biden, he helps Biden. He also helps Biden by making Biden seem not nearly as old with Bernie Sanders looking, you know, even older potentially than Joe Biden does. He's also a white male, which I think in a weird way helps Joe Biden. So uh, Sanders being where he was, I think was critical to Biden being able to survive this in the long run. Now we're seeing kind of a tectonic shift here where as Sanders shrinks, Warren surges and Harris fades. Now, granted, this could change the next time there's a debate or some event that occurs. But if that trend continues, even though Biden is leading by a solid 10, 11, 12 points nationally and doing well in the key polls of Iowa and New Hampshire and even in California, which is an early uh, primary state in 2020 for the Democrats, even though in the short run that's good for Biden, Long run, I think that's problematic because if Sanders, now his ego probably won't let this happen, but if Sanders drops out, if he, if he gets to the point where he realizes he cannot win, he's hemorrhaging money, the Bernie bots just aren't large enough for this to occur, if he were to drop out, that would be devastating to Biden because where would those people go right now? Those people would almost all go to Elizabeth Warren. She's a progressive liberal. Uh, She speaks their language. She's from the same uh, geographic uh, region as Bernie Sanders. She's, you know, an older person. Uh, You know, there's she's she's going to be one of the front runners. She's in the Senate, just like Bernie Sanders. It is a it is very natural for those people, especially now that Harris is fading, 
those people are much more likely to go to Warren now that she has started to exert her superiority over Harris, the other major female character. Uh, character. They are kind of like characters, aren't they? I meant candidate, but it's a, it was a Freudian slip of character. The, 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 the characters in this play, in this reality TV show. So if Harris continues to fade, that is dangerous for Joe Biden. Because if the Sanders people eventually leave him because he's dropped out or whatever, they're going to go to Warren. And if you were to combine Sanders people with Warren's current level of support, now she is well ahead of uh, Joe Biden, especially in New Hampshire. And Iowa's not going to be all that easy for Joe Biden because it's a caucus. And caucuses are won by nut jobs. And that's the, the reality. You've got to be nutty to get out there in the middle of uh, February in the nighttime in Iowa to go tell your neighbors who you want to support for president. So right there, all of a sudden, Iowa and New Hampshire, under that scenario, which is hardly for sure, but it is a rational scenario, under that scenario, it starts to look pretty darn good for Elizabeth Warren. And if it becomes Warren versus Biden one-on-one, I'm sorry, I, I don't know how Biden wins that battle. I, I really don't. Uh, unless uh, the Obamas decided to put everything on the line to salvage Joe, which I don't know that they're willing or able to do. And so if it ends up being Elizabeth Warren, uh, that is, that's pretty darn good news for Donald Trump because I think he will use the Pocahontas thing uh, to destroy her. And the history of liberal Democrats from Massachusetts running for president has been pretty pathetic over the years. And, and now you got one who has a lot of vulnerabilities. I know a lot of liberal members of the media, they think the Pocahontas thing is done and, and that she's a really good candidate. I'm sorry. I don't believe that at all. I, I think that she would be one of the top candidates that Donald Trump would want to run against. Again, this is kind of the doomsday scenario if you're one of those who really wants Donald Trump to be defeated. Uh, I'm not suggesting for 100, anywhere near 100 percent this is going to happen, but it's a scenario that is certainly plausible. But in the short run, I would say that this has been a bad week politically for Donald Trump. No question that the shootings did not hurt, did not help him. Uh, no question that the stock market, and the trade war is not helping him to what extent no one knows for sure. Uh, Joe Biden regaining control of the Democratic process, at least temporarily, is not good for Donald Trump. And so with all that being said, as we always end each episode of the Individual One podcast, uh, the, the numbers are going to be adjusted slightly against Donald Trump's favor. I'm going to nudge up the chances that he does not uh, serve out his first full term in office all the way from 1% to 2% uh, for the reasons that I've already discussed. And uh, his reelection chances, I'm now going to nudge down below 50%. Again, as I've said many times, this is based largely in Joe Biden being the Democratic presidential campaign. I think the chances of that are still pretty decent, uh, but also because of the other political factors that we've discussed. I had it previously just over 50 percent. Now I'm going to put it at 48 percent. So, again, no wagering at home. This is all for entertainment purposes. A 2 percent chance that Donald Trump does not uh, finish off his first term in office, a 48% chance that he is reelected as president of the United States. That'll do it for episode number 46 of the Individual One podcast. We'll be back 
Sunday early afternoon Los Angeles time with episode number 47. Until then, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual1Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler, and you're listening to the Global Story Network. Network.